Father in heaven, give us the grace and wisdom that we need this morning to hear what it is you were saying through Paul to the church in Corinth and what it is you are saying to us. Help us to work hard. Help us, please, to have soft hearts. Help us to hear your voice. And more than that, would you give us the strength and wisdom, the integrity we need to, by your spirit, with your help, live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen. It almost feels like not a week goes by without some sort of sad scandal somewhere in the wider global church. It's gutting, isn't it? It's gutting in all kinds of ways. It's gutting for the fact that there are victims and people are taken for granted or abused, whatever it might be. The fact that the church can be left cynical and broken, unsure who to trust. The fact that the, the world looking in just responds as it does. And yet also, I find it gutting, if I'm honest, often by the response of the church in question, of the denomination in question. Because very often it seems they have sought, at least historically, to deal with things internally, quietly, almost brushing stuff under the carpet. And yet truth, truth has a way of coming out. And people end up hurt and confused and broken and disillusioned tearful. See, friends, it feels as if the purity of the church really matters. And so the way that sin is dealt with in church really matters. It seems to me at the heart of this section today, at least partly, that's part of where Paul's focus lands, this church in Corinth. There's stuff going on within the church that must be dealt with properly, he says. Just to give you a um, reminder, if you were here last week or you were able to listen in, maybe you remember we saw it was a messy church. There was a tricky situation that Paul was writing into. On the one hand, Paul had already visited them. It had been complicated when he went. We saw there were issues of division, division around gifts and leadership and social status, it seems. There There was sin, some sort of sexual immorality within the church, it seems. There was some kind of doctrinal confusion and muddle, it seems. And then more than that, do you remember, there were these these super apostles, these so-called apostles who were strong and lofty and eloquent, and they looked down on Paul and his inferior, amateur, weak and foolish demeanor. They were the professionals. They were impressive. And they were giving Paul real flag. And by the way, you probably paid them for their services as well. I mean, why would you follow someone like Paul, little Paul, in a a city like Corinth where strength mattered so much? And yet Paul just looks a bit rubbish. But what he did last week, do you remember, he opened up some of what he had gone through And as he did that, he showed us that these super apostles had forgotten Jesus. 
And because Jesus suffered, so gospel ministers suffer. And actually, it was more than that. This little autobiographical snapshot that he gave us, it was Easter-shaped through Paul's almost suffering and death. And yet from that, resurrection and life, Paul followed the way of Christ as he ministered. Why? Do you remember verse 9? So that we might not rely on ourselves. And so verse 10, that we might set our hope on him. Gospel ministers follow the example of Christ, says Paul. These apostles, they're just doing things as the world does it. What happens this week is that we get a bit more of a a detailed idea of some of the stuff these, these apostles were saying about Paul. Little grenades they seem to chuck at him. And as we get that as well, there's this ongoing pastoral issue within the church that we see they are dealing with. But I think this is a a section fundamentally about purity. The purity of gospel ministers matters. And so the purity of the church of Christ matters. Paul knows that. He knows that if he is discredited as a minister of the gospel, so his gospel is discredited. At this embryonic, fragile stage in the church life, it really matters. That's why he defends himself. And if Paul goes down, then the fruit of his labor may go down as well. The real gospel even will potentially fall and collapse. A little trajectory leaves you in a very different place at the end of the day. So the purity of Paul matters, the purity of the church matters as well. Again, in these early stage, if this church is infected with, with sin and division, at this early stage, it leaves things broken later on particularly. The trajectory leaves you a long way away. And so, near the end of the section, and particularly verse 5 onwards of chapter 2, Paul will give them and us some helpful thoughts and ideas, some helpful teaching on what we might call church discipline. We'll see it's hard and it's painful. It has been for Paul and it has been for them. But I take it it's a necessary section for us to wrestle with, that the scriptures might shape how we deal with difficult things in the life of the church, if, how, when, why we deal with those difficult things. How should it be carried out if it's to happen? I think this matters because sometimes churches get this wrong. And I'm aware there will be folk in this room for whom perhaps you have been burnt by this kind of thing in the past. Maybe you've seen it handled badly. Maybe you've been on the end of it and it's been handled badly. So we will slow down and dig into a bit of Paul's teaching there. But the passage, it seems to me, is based around three little verbal grenades that they, um, that they fire at Paul that are chucked in his direction. The first one is that Paul is deceitful, verse 12 to 14. Page 1159, if you've lost it. Verse 12, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. You see, in a a world like Corinth. where where strength matters, where image matters, then boasting, boasting would be far too common a thing. And it seems from the number of times Paul will mention that word, that these so-called apostles are accomplished boasters. 
Maybe that's their spiritual gift. They big up themselves and they belittle others. And if Paul has to engage with that kind of tactic, he will boast, but he will boast in the sort of things that matter, like the manner in which he has ministered to them, like his integrity and his godly sincerity. Verse 12. Presumably, and we'll see this in chapters to come, they had been engaging in deceitful manners, deceitful ways of doing ministry. But for Paul, everything is above board. It is clear, it is open, it is honest. Maybe where they were slippery and political, he was genuine, straightforward. For Paul, it wasn't a PR exercise. What you saw was what you got with Paul. And so he's relied not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. You could trust Paul. I don't know, maybe in Corinth, there was a particular strategy you would employ. There were particular words that you would use worldly ideas and concepts. And so Paul does not engage in those games. He, he uses, verse 13, deliberate clarity, for we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. Unlike Corinth, there is no empty rhetoric, there is no slippery language, there is no double entendre. Paul is the kind of guy who says what he means. I think that is so relevant in our day, isn't it? In a world where, where words have a fluidity of meaning, in a world of strategy and spin, here Paul is refreshingly straightforward in the way that he speaks. What he does and what he says can be trusted. Paul is, is not deceitful. Think of, let me think of the kind of people or organizations or groups that you have dealings with through your week or through your life. And I'm sure there will be some, and you will just not be quite sure if you can trust them. Maybe they're sneaky in the way they do things. Maybe they are politically minded, always in it for themselves. You're not quite sure what is the motivation behind this thing you've just said or this thing you've just done. Everything about them getting their way, getting one up on you. But for Paul, what you see is what you get. You can trust him. This matters for us, it matters for people like me as a, as a minister of the gospel in some sense. If I'm honest, it's easy and natural to do things like the world does things, to put our confidence in the kind of things that the world puts its confidence in. It's tempting to be more than a little Corinthian at times, to want to appear more impressive, to, to at times be slippery with words, where the Bible says hard things, complicated things, things that the world would find offensive. We can duck out of all the truth. But actually it matters for all of us, just in our daily lives, that we are trustworthy. The kind of people we are reflects who we believe in, who we belong to. And so we deal, verse 12, with integrity and godly sincerity because we represent a God who loves truth, a God who can be trusted, a God who, like Paul, what you see is what you get, largely. Or verse 12, to rely on God's grace rather than worldly wisdom. It matters hugely. We, we might end up looking foolish in the eyes of those around us, but that's okay because we are a people driven by grace. And we do things different. Paul, no, Paul is not deceitful, he says, that that charge will not stick. 
he has conducted himself with integrity and godly sincerity. That's the first grenade. The second one seems to be that he's disloyal, verse 15 to 22. Um, He's defending himself again, and it's a bit complicated, but it seems to be he had told them he would do something, and then he ends up not doing it, and so they pounce. They say, look, he is fickle, he is disloyal, Corinthians. You You can't trust Paul. He keeps changing his mind. He'll say he'll do one thing, and then he'll do another thing. So if you jump in with me at verse 15, I... I wanted to visit you twice so that you might benefit. Oh, sorry. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But then skip down to 23. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. You see, he had planned to call in on them, twice even, but then plans had changed, and so of course the opponents, they latch onto this and use it as their ammo against him, smear campaign with their with their worldly wisdom, with their lack of integrity. Actually, as the letter develops, um, there's a strong chance that these super-apostles saw themselves as kind of super-spiritual. They received unquestionable divine revelation or something like that, maybe almost making them infallible. And you know, maybe where they pointed up and said, well, the Lord saith, you can't question or challenge those things, but Paul is happy to say, I use my brain, I plan to do this, but then 2 verse 1, I made up my mind to do this instead. Now don't miss him here. It doesn't mean at times that the Lord does not give us a particular burden for a particular matter, but it does mean that using the brains that our God has given us is perhaps the norm when it comes to life. More on that in a bit. But they chuck this grenade. And actually, Paul's concern is not just that they would trust him, but actually that they would trust Jesus. Because, do you see, if Paul is seen as being untrustworthy, well, then does that mean that Jesus is not trustworthy either? That's where he goes in that middle section there, 18 to 21. So have a look at verse 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. That is, Jesus is always totally reliable, says Paul. He has always been plan A. Everything God's ever said is answered in the yes of Jesus. The amen, the affirmative of Jesus. Paul doesn't need shady Corinthian methods to pull the wool over their eyes and to persuade them. No, no, that is the work of our Trinitarian God. It is God who persuades people. Verse 21, it it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
That's, um, that's the language of the law courts. It's a confidence that God has made a legally binding agreement that makes the future certain. We don't have a Corinthian confidence in impressive rhetoric and words. We have a, a Christian confidence in our Trinitarian God. And we can trust him. He is powerful. He is trustworthy. Everything is yes in Jesus. You see, and because Paul, because God has been pleased to use Paul's preaching, because the Lord has put his spirit on them as a seal of approval, a seal of ownership, verse 22, then to challenge Paul and his message is to challenge the God who is at work. Now, Paul is not fickle. Paul is not disloyal. But Paul can be trusted. Again, on the way past, just a couple of thoughts and ideas for application for us. In one sense, this is just a great example of the normal Christian life. This is your Monday morning stuff. It, it can debunk unhelpful and wrong ideas we can have about guidance that sometimes comes from the Lord. You, you see, Paul makes his plans, he writes a schedule, he sets an itinerary, but then he is flexible as his circumstances dictate it. He uses his wisdom and he changes his mind. And that is okay. We need both. We need to be organized and we need to be organic, whether as individuals or as a wider body, as a church. We need both. One without the other is messy and it's awkward. If we are so flexible and free and organic that we have no plan and no direction and nothing actually happens... We just sort of meander along without a vision and our focus or our goal is nowhere. Nothing gets done. Probably you know people like that. There are a few elbow nudges, no doubt, that's your spine, I'm sure. But to have just that kind of organic, disorganized thing doesn't work. But then conversely, if we are so fixed and firm, if we are so organized and immovable and inflexible, that doesn't work. And so Paul makes plans. And he changes them. It doesn't mean he can't be trusted. It means he's wise. There's a sense in which this is a great, just a worked-through example of guidance and life for the believer. The second application, though, is this idea of the trustworthiness of God. So if you are a, a believer who, who wobbles at times, maybe amidst the storms of life, asking what about that sin? Is, is Jesus enough? Is his work on the cross really enough for me? How am I going to keep going? How am I going to keep standing firm? And this is a reminder for us to, to instead of look in for answers, to look to him for assurance. He is faithful. And it's not so much about the size of our faith in one sense. A teeny-weeny mustard seed-sized faith is more than enough. It's about his dependability and his reliability. And he is utterly dependable and he is utterly reliable. And if you're a believer here, and he has anointed you and he has put his seal of ownership on you, his spirit in your hearts as a deposit, then he has got you and you are his. And you can trust him. 
And if we feel wobbly, then actually verses like this are so helpful because God is faithful. He is the faithful one as we sung. He is the one who is made strong through our weakness. It's not about us. It's about putting our trust in him. So he's not deceitful. He's not disloyal. Thirdly, he's not distant. Verse 23 to 2 verse 11. And you can hear them, can't you? It's not just that Paul is fickle. Not just that Paul is changing his mind all the time and we don't know if we can trust him. It's actually he doesn't care about you guys. Give up on Paul. He doesn't care about you. I mean, if he really cared, he would have turned up, wouldn't he? You know, if he really cared, he would have given you some time. He would have put you in his diary. And yet, clearly, his letter to them was a hard one to write. Just flick over the page to 1160 and verse 4. Sometimes because we care about people, we say hard things or we do hard things. Sometimes because we love people, we're prepared to challenge them. And so verse 4, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You see, he had written to them. He'd written to them and it had affected them and he had cancelled his visit because it seems he couldn't face the ugly scenes of an unresolved dispute with them. They were in the midst of a round of messy church discipline. And so verse 3, actually he already, he'd already written to them and told them about this. They couldn't accuse him of being distant or cold or uncaring because verse 3, he'd already told them what was going on. But he wanted to give them space. As a church, you want to give them space to handle the issue themselves, space to get things sorted. And then Paul would come back. Rather than him coming in and micromanaging and then doing it for him, he wants them to do it for themselves. It's a level of maturity in the church he's looking for. And so as I say, while we have the opportunity, it is good to have a look at these verses on church discipline to see what they can teach us. Not because there's anything in particular in the room that we, as far as I'm aware, need to deal with that we have the defenses and we have the strategy and structures and ideas and thinking before we get there, if ever it needs to be applied. Um, we don't know exactly what the situation is um, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2. A um, couple of ideas. The most likely, I think, is it's something he's already mentioned in the previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5. I do have a Flick back if you like. It's pretty unpleasant. It seems to be a, a case of incest in the church. And then so, in fact, let's go there. Um, chapter 5 and verse 1. I'll just read the first couple of verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Presumably that's his stepmom. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who had been doing this? It sounds awful. In one sense, it doesn't matter what the situation is. We know that his letter and his cancelled visit mean that Paul has taken this really seriously. And so this question of church discipline, it, I think is a question for us today in all kinds of reasons. One is that there are many groupings, denominations, streams, networks where essentially discipline doesn't happen. 
this doesn't, it's just not there. Maybe we don't care so much. Maybe, maybe the world has crept into the church. Maybe we're conflict-averse and so we don't want to deal with things. But in verse 9 of our passage for today, in Paul's mind, in a local church, church discipline is necessary. In fact, it is the litmus test of their obedience to Paul to see if they would stand the test. If they would trust Paul, if they would love the Lord, and if they would do this. Would they do this? Would we do this? Church discipline is not optional, it seems to me. In fact, church history will show us that discipline as a concept has very often been seen as a mark of a faithful biblical church. And in some people's minds, as soon as discipline doesn't happen in a church or a stream or a denomination or a network, then there's a question mark over whether that is a faithful biblical church. But as I say, it's the kind of thing that can touch on raw nerves. I'm aware there'll be people potentially who will have seen it done badly. There'll be baggage for people. Perhaps there's brokenness and there are confusions still. Do come and grab me afterwards. I'd love to chat and to pray with you. I want to draw out four lessons just briefly on church discipline. And from these verses, one is that sin damages the whole body. That's there in verse 5. Do You see, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. It's part of the, the outworking of being a body as a church, isn't it? We are a body. Bodies are joined together. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. But also the actions of one member of a body can shame the whole of the body. We're joined up in the way that we work. No man or woman is an island. The actions of one affect the actions of the whole, that means. So sin damages the whole body. Secondly, discipline is to be taken by all in verse 6. Do you see that there? Um, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So this individual, if it is this guy from 1 Corinthians 5, then there's been a, a punishment of some sort. That probably means a public rebuke. And the fact that the majority word is used there in verse 6, maybe it shows that there wasn't unanimity among them. It may well be that as a church body, they voted on what to do with this guy, how to rebuke him, whether to rebuke him. But it's striking, isn't it? That is a body thing. The leadership perhaps could suggest it, but the entire membership needs to decide upon it and to act it. I will say it's one of the reasons we as a church have a membership. It's partly because of situations like this. Thankfully, they've been rare in the life of Magdalen Road. But if we do, if this is a kind of decision to make, to be taken by those who have formally said they are part of the body, committing themselves here, it really matters. The right people need to make this decision. They are people who have entrusted themselves to us as a body, joined that body formally. And it's also because if ever we had to remove somebody from the body, then there's a sense in which we know what we are removing them from. Third one is that discipline is always remedial. That's in verse 7 to 8. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. I've said this before, but I have a good friend who says that he would never join a church that didn't have membership because he knows the deceitfulness of his own heart. I find that challenging. He wants to be in a place that will question him, that even might remove him from the body if he goes off the rails, that he might hear again the gospel and that there might be a reconciliation. He wants that formality because he knows what he's like inside. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus would say that if formal discipline happens and someone is removed, then you should treat them like a tax collector and a sinner. Which I take it in the context of Matthew means you preach the gospel to them. It means they need to hear the gospel again. It means they need to hear the good news about Jesus again. And, and we pray that they might return it's always meant to be remedial. It's always meant to be with a view to them being brought back into the body again. That, that mustn't be forgotten. And so verse 7, he's to be forgiven, comforted. Verse 8, his love to be reaffirmed. The end goal is never to boot them or punish them or make them look silly or whatever it might be, but always to receive them back again. And then fourthly, there's this as well. This is really important. Verse 11. Discipline can be exploited by the devil. Isn't that striking? A word of caution as Paul finishes. Satan loves to divide people. He loves to, do the un to undo the work that Jesus has done on the cross. As he unites a new people for himself, Satan loves to destroy that. He loves to divide people. And what better way to divide people than if tensions are high, if emotions are raised? Maybe it starts with a commendable desire for purity within the church. And then before you know it, it ends up with division and recriminations and people taking sides. And Satan has a way of turning something that is good into something that is bad. And you see, the purity of the church really matters. Because if the purity of the church is impure, if things go wrong, then people looking in at the church say, well, what, what are you about? What do you stand for? What difference does Jesus actually make? You aren't that different from us, are you? And this side of eternity, the church will always get it wrong. We are still broken and sinful people. We'll still make mistakes. We are not what we were, but we are not what we will be, and we are not what we already are in Christ. And so we will make mistakes. We will get it wrong. We, we are messy. But where sin happens, then it needs to be brought out into the open and confessed and dealt with and made better because there is always enough grace. It may mean that things can't ever be the same again. It may mean that situations will change permanently. But it always means that God's grace can shine to the darkness as sin comes out into the open. And so the discipline that Paul outlines, as he proves to them he is not distant, is always with a view towards a reconciliation, 
and grace and forgiveness and comfort. And it comes from a heart of love. Again, why does this matter? It matters because a cynical world watching in at the church, asking what difference does Jesus really make when we deal with sin well, when sin is taken seriously, and when grace is appropriately shown, then the world sees something of who our God is, both his holiness and his hatred of sin, but also his love and his grace and his kindness.